Good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you guys today. Welcome to our family gathering. Um, it's just good to be here and, and to be able to gather together with you to um, open and look at God's Word together. Um, we're in the book of Revelation, uh, as we have been for the last four or five weeks or so, so we're going to be continuing that today. Um, before we do get into uh, just our, you know, the sermon this morning and stuff, I just acknowledge the fact that many of us um, experienced a pretty significant loss this week, uh, unexpectedly and shockingly. Um, someone who's uh, formerly part of our church, uh, named Lorraine Ryan, uh, went into the hospital suddenly because of an infection um, at the beginning of this week and passed away within 24 hours of, I think maybe within 12 hours of arriving at the hospital. So her and her husband, Glenn, we're longtime members of our church. Lorraine, as you can see, um, she sung on a worship team. She uh, did uh, deaf interpretation, uh, sign language for some of our deaf members at the very beginning of our family life, and um, was just uh, critical in, in a lot of ways in the early uh, years of our church family. So many of us have, have uh, continued to be connected with both Glenn and Lorraine over the years. And um, so this is a shocking loss for, uh, for her friends and for her family and especially for her husband. So um, I just I wanted to invite you to pray for him especially um, and uh, just that God would comfort him. He's, he's dealing with a, a lot right now, and I think he's a little bit overwhelmed with people um, reaching out to him, which is understandable. Um, so just continue to keep him in, in your prayers if you can. <clears throat> um, remember Psalm 147, um, which says, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. If you just pray that with me over him. In fact, I'll, let me do that now. Father, just pray that you would, even this morning, um, surround Glenn with your presence. I pray, God, that in his uh, desperation and his loss and the shock of what he's experienced this week, that you would surround him, that he would know uh, the depths of Psalm 34:18, which is the, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And um, so, God, Father, I pray that, um, that in his desperation, God, he would turn to you, he would cry out to you, and that he would find you as a good father who is waiting to welcome him into your arms to comfort, um, to, to cry alongside him, to weep with those who weep. Thank you, God, that you are not removed from our pain, but that you have experienced everything that we've experienced in life yet without sin. That when we look at Jesus and we look at what he endured for us on the cross and, and how he even endured the death of close friends um, and wept alongside those who mourned, that you... Uh, know exactly what it's like to experience everything that we feel in this life and that you promise to come alongside of us. It's a deep promise, God, and we, we thank you for it, and I pray it, uh, that it would resound over Glenn and over Lorraine's entire family this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, thank you for those of you who've uh, prayed and asked about my back. It's been slowly getting better this week, so um, it's not 100%, but I'm able to stand. I think I'll be able to stand the whole way through, so James, no, no need for the fireside chat slide this morning. I was, I was thinking after, how cruel is it that you put a slide up behind a person with back problems so that he has to turn around to look at it, you know? <laughs> like <laughs> Anyway... <laughs> um, anyway, it's good, to, it's good to have you here this morning. We, we are doing a series called um, My Dearest Bride. It's a, a kind of a journey through the seven letters at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And we're, we're looking at Jesus as being a groom who is writing letters to his bride. And we're asking the question, what is Jesus, if he's our great bridegroom, what does he have to say to us? Because if we're the church, then he is our groom and we are his bride. And um, so we've been looking at each of these seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. If you're going to follow along with us, it's at the very back of the, 
of the Bibles, <laughs> every Bible, that is uh, under the seats uh, in front of you. And today we're looking at chapter 3, and, um, and we're looking at the church of Sardis. Now, l- I want to give you a little bit of a background on Sardis before we get into the text, because um, Sardis was an interesting city in that it had this sort of ancient reputation as being an indomitable city. Like, it, it was a great uh, fortress of a city, uh, sort of perched high on a mountain. It had kind of natural defenses, and uh, its geography made it ripe to be uh, uh, the capital of a great kingdom. And at one time, it was the capital of the kingdom of Lydia. And um, it was never, as far as we know, historically, never conquered through con- conventional warfare methods. So, it's, you know, every army that kind of, you know, came up against Sardis was turned away, except for two times. There are two times, at least in Sardis's history, where we know that it was conquered. Um, the first time was by King Cyrus II of Persia, and that happened in 546 B.C., if you're interested in a history buff. Uh, and then the second time was by Antiochus III, and that happened in 214 B.C. I say all these things so that James can stay engaged uh, with what I'm talking about this morning. Of course, he already knew these things, so it wasn't a surprise to him. Um, but bo- both of these instances were at times when uh, Sardis was a little bit overconfident in their strength. They were a little overconfident in their wealth. They were sort of resting on their reputation. And uh, in both instances, the, the attack came in the middle of the night when they stopped keeping watch. And so the enemy was able to get so close to the city walls that by the time they realized something was happening, it was too late. And so the, the, this city now has sort of a reputation for having this strong past, but at the time where John is writing this letter, um, they weren't that city anymore. They were clinging on to this sort of ancient reputation of being this strong, healthy, kind of alive place. But in reality, that reputation wasn't really fitting who they were anymore. They had diminished in stature over the centuries. And um, so Jesus is going to use their own history as a city to describe what the church's relationship to him looks like, okay? That's why I'm giving you the backdrop. So let's see what Jesus says. Uh, Revelation 3, verses 1 to 6. To the angel of the church of Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and His angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So you get the, the kind of background, the, the sort of analogy that Jesus is making. This would have been incredibly... Um, poignant for this community as they heard Jesus' words, they would have thought, oh my gosh, we are becoming like what our city has experienced. And the, the interesting thing is that, and what sets this letter apart from the other seven, is that Jesus says, just like the other seven, I see your deeds, right? And we've seen that again and again and again. I see your deeds. I see what you're doing. I, I know He says that again and again and again. But you get to this letter, and it's like, I see your deeds, period. And there's nothing else. 
but what Jesus does tell them is that they, he knows that they have a certain reputation, that they're, they've built a certain name for themselves, that, that if you were to think about the church in Sardis, you'd go, man, like, I want to be like those guys. But that Jesus knows the reality underneath the surface because as man looks at the outward, Jesus looks at the heart. And he says to them, inside, I know you're dead. I know you're asleep. I know things aren't what they appear. And this is a fundamentally different message from all the other churches because if you remember, in all the other churches that we've looked at, there are some kind of external forces that are pushing them down or pulling them away. Right? They're, they're either experiencing persecution, which is drawing people away or pushing them down uh, in their relationship with God, or they're experiencing false teaching, which is sort of pulling people away from Jesus. Um, if you look at it, this is sort of like the opposite of Smyrna. If you remember in Smyrna, they were being physically killed, right? Persecuted beyond belief. But internally, Jesus says, I see the life of the gospel shining in you. And Sardis is the exact opposite. Outwardly, they seem alive. Inwardly, they're fast asleep. And the thing that Jesus calls out in them is not to endure persecution. It's not to... um, be intolerant of false teaching. It is to not be comfortable anymore with your self-induced slumber. They've gone to sleep spiritually. They've gone on autopilot in their relationship with Jesus. They're on complete cruise control. They've zoned out. And he says to them, you have unfinished deeds. You, you have all these good intentions and this good reputation, but you don't follow through on it. And I know because I see it. And he tells them to wake up. Now, we, we don't know all the reasons why they uh, have fallen asleep necessarily, but let's, I mean, let's just think about this, um, this concept together for a second. What are some of the reasons that we tend to fall asleep spiritually? When you think about your own life, you think about people around you. Are you asleep now? Okay. <laughs> okay, what do you mean? We think we've arrived. Yeah, so we, we, we become comfortable with our, this, sort of our own sanctification, our own um, following of Jesus. We think that we've somehow, you know, achieved the, the, the level that God expects of us. And so we, we become restful of where we're at. We think, okay, this is, this is good enough. And <laughs> right away, you kind of see that Jesus is not okay with that, right? Um, yeah, uh, James first, and then I saw his hand first. I'm sorry. We'll do both of you. Yeah. We give God the last fruits of our time and energy, but there's very little left. Yeah. So we, we create time for the things that we really love <laughs> um, or we really think are important. We make those the first fruits of our effort. And they could be good things, right? But we fill our time and our energy and our minds with those things. And then we think, oh, I don't have anything left to give to Jesus. And he gets the last fruits as opposed to him being part of absolutely everything that we do. Yeah, what were you going to say? Yeah. Yeah, and Jesus predicted that was going to happen, right? When he gave the parable of the sower and the seeds, he said there are some times when the, the Word of God is going to be scattered on ground, and then the weeds are going to come and choke that seed out. 
And what did he say? He said, the weeds are the cares of this world. And so there, there is a, a way in which you can crowd out the fruit of the gospel in your life by just letting the cares of the world take over. And you put your eyes more on, on what you need to do or accomplish or not do or stress or anxiety, and, and you lose focus on this seed that wants to grow in your heart, but you're too busy letting the weeds choke it out. That's a real danger, especially in America. Yeah. Okay, yeah, what do you mean by self-will? Uh-huh. Okay, yeah. So kind of being in the driver's seat um, of your life in, in a sense and asking God to bless and honor your plans rather than submitting yourself to him. Yeah. Yeah. Right. What's that? All of the, yeah, yeah. When things are good, I can fall asleep. When things are bad, I can fall asleep. When things are okay, I can, you know. Um, and, and maybe the reasons why you may fall asleep spiritually are particular to you. And you, you your traps may be um, unique in, in some sense where you... Maybe you tend to fall asleep more when things are going well. And so you, you go into kind of a season of comfort where your family is all right, your jobs are all right, your bills seem to get paid, and you just go to sleep spiritually. You think you have what you need, you feel strong and confident, and you don't realize that there is an enemy trampling up the walls. <laughs> Or on the other hand, a lot of times we can go to sleep, as Matthew said, because we're experiencing difficulty. And we use sleep as, a, as an avoidance mechanism to get away from hard things. So I don't want to face the stress. I don't want to face the pain. I don't want to deal with the anxiety. And so slumber is a way to numb those things in your heart. And you're trying to make yourself comfortable or distract yourself from things. I don't know um, what they are for you. Maybe you're just tired. Maybe you're tired and you choose to check out rather than press into what God wants to say to you in your exhaustion. You know, like, if your car is on empty, where should you go? The gas station, right? And I think so often, like... We, we, the light is on, we realize our tank is empty, and rather than going to the place that's going to fill us and renew us and strengthen us, we go to something that can't do any of those things and yet distracts us from the true place where we can get refilled. And so we run to things like Netflix or Xbox or... What are those? They're, they're an escape from... The, the realities of life, but they induce coma. And oftentimes, when this starts to happen to us, we're okay with it. Or maybe we're not okay with it, but, but we, just, we don't feel like we can get out of that cycle. And this, this spiritual sleepiness can, can sort of take over, and it can... Turn off or close down your receptivity to God. And that's, you know, when you think about, like, why would this be so dangerous? Like, why is Jesus even bringing this up? And the first answer to that is that it creates apathy. Because I'm, you know, it's easy to go, well, isn't sleep a good thing? Like, don't we need rest? Yeah, we need rest. I'm not, I'm not talking about the eight hours that our bodies are designed to get. I'm not talking about the Sabbath uh, where we're intentionally told to rest from our work so that God can renew us again ahead of doing new work. Those are good and necessary kinds of sleep. But you know, how many of you have ever gotten so much sleep that you wake up and the rest of your day you're sleepy? You know, I, like I went through a stretch in college where I was getting like on average like 10, 11, even 12 hours of sleep at night. And 
when you get that much sleep, you get up and you just feel tired the rest of the day. You're like, what's going on? Like, all I want to do is eat Cheetos and like play video games. <laughs> and you never wake up. You just, you, you sleep so much that you're, even your waking hours are still asleep. And when that happens to you, you become slow in every sense. You become apathetic to everything that happens around you. You're apathetic to engage with people. You're apathetic to, to respond to what God's doing in your life. You're, 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 you certainly don't initiate anything. In fact, that, that word apathy means apathos. It's, it's to have absolutely no feeling at all. And when you're spiritually asleep, it, what it does is it numbs your desire for the things of God. It numbs your desperation for His presence, for His movement in your heart. It, it, it dulls your strength in the Lord and it, and it kills your ability to walk with Jesus. And you become indifferent to the kingdom of God and you become comfortable with the world around you. And you think, oh, it's, just, it's okay, you know. Your passion for Jesus, your, your desire to worship Him and to live for Him, it shrinks down to this faint pulse and you go, is this person still alive or not? I don't even know. And that's what's happening in Sardis. And that's the first danger of being spiritually asleep is that you become apathetic. It's, take a hard look at your life and ask yourself, is it defined by Passion or apathy, and that will tell you whether or not you're awake. Now, the second um, danger to uh, being spiritually asleep, if the first is apathy, the second is exclusion. The second is exclusion. I was, um, I was driving one time out to a meeting that was happening in Lebanon, Pennsylvania, and um, when you're going through, like this was like early in the morning, because I'm trying to miss the traffic through Philadelphia, and of course I didn't miss the traffic through Philadelphia. And so you have to be like on your toes, right, as you're going through all those places like around Philly to get to the other side. And so you're engaged and you're sort of hyper aware, but then you get to the turnpike. And you, you, <laughs> you get on your exit at the turnpike, and you set the cruise control, and now it's like, oh, and you just, like, drive, you know? Do you ever drive somewhere, and then you sort of, like, come to, and you're like, how did I, like, a, an hour has passed, like, two hours have passed? I, I don't know how I got here. Yeah. I'm not saying I'm physically asleep, but just, I sort of just, like, <laughs> mentally check out. I know, you're like, uh, yeah, don't ever drive with Jay. So... That's what I was about to say. So I, this one time I was going out to a meeting. There was going to be an all-day meeting. I got up early to go. I got through the traffic. I got on the turnpike. And, um, and I, was, I needed to get off at the, at the exit for Lebanon, Pennsylvania. And I blew right by it. I had no idea it was even coming. And so I like, suddenly come to and I'm like, where am I? Like, I'm looking at my GPS and I'm like, that can't be right. Because I'm halfway to Harrisburg which is another 20 miles. <laughs> and here's the thing. Once you miss your exit on the turnpike, you can't just like pull a Yui, you know? <laughs> yeah, not without a whole lot of damage and, you know. So, so what do you have to do? You have to drive all the way to Harrisburg. I had to drive through Harrisburg because my meeting was kind of on the north side of Lebanon. So I go th all the way through Harrisburg up to Route 80 and then backtrack all the way down there and finally get to my meeting an hour late because I checked out for 10 minutes. And I remember when I got there, um, I didn't, in reality, I didn't miss a whole lot. But here's what I did miss. I missed the time of worship to begin. I missed the prayer. I missed the introduction of what we were trying to accomplish. And so the, for the rest of the day, I'm sitting there going, well, I wonder what we're trying to accomplish today. <laughs> and I, so I always felt like out of step and out of place because I'm like, things are happening around me, but I feel so 
disoriented to the process because I wasn't here from the beginning. I missed out. I, was, I excluded myself from what was going on. And I think spiritually, when we're asleep, we, if we're asleep long enough, we can wake up and we can look around and we can, and we can realize that God has been on the move and that we, we could have been with Him, we could have been on the leading edge of what He was doing, but we miss the exit and we wonder, how in the world did I get here? And how did I miss out on what God's been doing? And now I'm trying to reconnect with Him and I just feel like I've been out of the loop for so long. And I think that's, by the way, what Jesus is talking about when in verse 3 he says, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what time I will come to you. We often read that as Jesus' big second coming. Right? That he's going to come in and, and, um, and rapture his people and then there are going to be other people that wake up and go, oh no, like... I, you know, I'm on a bus and the bus driver's gone or something. Or, uh, you know, the Left Behind series where suddenly you're on a plane and the pilots disappeared, you know? I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think what he's talking about is more in line with what he says in John 10.10 where Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Here's what Jesus is talking about. I'm going to come to your city and I'm going to move in it to give people life abundantly in me. And if you're not awake, you're going to miss it. Do you want to be a part of my invasion into your life, into your city, into your world? Because the greatest thing that you miss out on when you're asleep is to check out of God's amazing adventure story as he's writing himself into history. And he's saying to Sardis, if you don't wake up, if you don't, if you don't realize that I'm coming, that I'm moving, that I'm changing lives, you're going to go, wow, God has moved on without me. There's a plane that I could have been on and I missed it. You know, I, I have this... Um, probably inordinate amount of fear in airport terminals that I'm going to miss my plane. I, I hate being in the bathroom when it's like boarding time, even though I know like that line's going to take forever, you know? And I, I was in the airport one time coming back from Haiti, and I had an eight-hour layover in my terminal. I had nothing to do for eight hours, and I had just spent a week in Haiti. I was exhausted. So I'm like... If I can sleep at any point, it's going to be now, right? So I find like a little corner to get into and, and try to get myself all comfortable. You know, I could not fall asleep. And the reason was I kept going, oh, like, it didn't leave, did it? You know, like, <laughs> you have eight hours. And I, I could not, could not fall asleep. Because I was terrified of that flight leaving without me. I think we need a little bit more of that. I'm convinced that there are places that God wants to take you. There are things that God wants you to be a part of for His kingdom. There are ways that God wants to reveal Himself to you and, and empower you. But when you sleep, you miss out on all of it. And the truth is, just like the fact that a plane is going to leave the terminal whether you're on it or not, Jesus is saying, I'm going to come like a thief and my kingdom will go on. And God will continue his activity of making disciples and reaching people in the world. The question is, are you awake enough to get on board? Or are you spiritually asleep and, it, and, and you will exclude yourself from the adventure that I want to take you on. I, I'm, I realized this week that um, I'm sort of getting to the tipping point in life where I've been a believer as long as I've been an unbeliever in Jesus. And many of you know my story. I came to faith at 21 years old. <clears throat> and um, 
I'll let you do the math, but it's been 18 years now uh, <laughs> uh, of knowing, um, knowing Jesus, knowing the one who holds the seven stars in his hand. And as I, as I think about various seasons of my life, I think there are so many points over the course of those 18 years when I've been asleep. You know, it wasn't that way at first. You, when you spend 21 years spiritually dead because you don't have the Spirit of God in you, and suddenly you go from being just sort of a religious person to encountering the living Jesus who wants to invade your heart and invade your life as a college student, and you're like, it, I walked around for at least a few years going, I was dead and now I'm alive. I, I can feel the, the life of God in me. But over time, I allow seasons to come in where I drift back off to sleep as though the 21 years before knowing the one who holds the seven stars in his hands was somehow better than the, the 18 that I've come to, into this season for. And if I know anything... I know in my heart that Jesus is worthy. He is worthy of every second of my life to be completely submitted to Him and offered as a vessel for His work in the world. There is no greater honor, there is no greater thing that you could devote your life to than that. But do I spend every minute on this earth as though that were actually the truth? Because that's what it means to keep watch. That's what it means to stay awake. And so much of my life has been spent asleep. Asleep to God's glory. Asleep to the ways that He wants to use me for His fame. Asleep to the ways that the Spirit is moving around me. And family... I am saying to you, I don't want to sleep on that anymore. I'm, I'm too sick of missing out. You know, it's like we've said over and over again that this is a letter from a groom to his bride. And I, can't, I just want you to imagine for a second that you're a groom, or let's, I mean, you could be either one, let's say, it doesn't matter. But the person that you're married to has narcolepsy. And like every time you try to like have a conversation with them, they zonk out, you know? Every time you say, let's dance together, they fall asleep. Every time you say, let's, let's travel, let's go together on an adventure, and they, they pass out. I think what Jesus is telling the church and what he's telling us as his bride this morning is, I want to dance with you. I want to lead you. I want to speak to you. I, I want you to live lives of love for me, but you can't do that when you're always falling asleep on me. We can't have a vibrant marriage with someone that's always dozing off. I, I'm convinced, as I was reading this, I felt such a personal kind of holy discomfort when I read this passage this week that there is no more fitting letter for the church in America than the letter to Sardis. That, 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 that America and the Christianity which resides within it for the most part is a sleepy imitation of what Jesus wants in a marriage. I was having a conversation with uh, this group of pastors that I was investing in, in Shadrach, Haiti. And um, they always want to know about the church in America. And, and they get a lot of people from the South that are come, kind of come through, and they're always sort of impressed with the, you know, the big churches and the buildings. And tell me about that. And how are, you know, what are things going? And they, they just... In, in, a, in a lot of ways, they, they want to imitate what they see happening in America. 
And I was having a conversation with them one time, and they were all late to a meeting that we were supposed to have. I forget what time it was, like 11 o'clock. It's not uncommon for them to be late. We had this thing called Haitian time, and uh, they, they abide by it. So, they, you know, things, things start late and go late, and they're fine with that. Um, but they, they came in. They were very apologetic. I said, where, where, you know, what were you guys up to? And they said, um, a few weeks ago, all of us pastors were together praying. We were asking God what he wanted to do. And we felt like he called all of our churches to say, I want you to set aside every Wednesday to pray and fast that, that I would move on your mountain. And so that's what we've been doing. Every Wednesday, we get our churches together and we, and we fast from the night before and we just pray and we pray and we pray and we pray and we're trusting that God is going to show himself to our community and that that at least 75% of our community is going to embrace the gospel over the next couple months. And I thought, like, who's awake and who's asleep? You know? Why in the world would you want to become more like us? We need to become more like you. (laughs) Frankly, I'm tired of the sleepy Christianity that we see in our country. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of an American Christianity that costs nothing and demands nothing from those who claim the name of Jesus. I'm tired of a Christianity that says that you can give God your Sundays but sleep through the rest of your week oblivious to the ways that the Spirit of God wants to move all around you. I'm tired of watching neighborhoods and workplaces and schools with zero gospel presence because the church is too busy running its programs to be aware of what God wants to do outside their walls. I'm tired of the drowsiness. I think God is so, so much more. He wants to come like a thief. And just steal up the kingdom of darkness from this world and replace it with the kingdom of his beloved son. Are you awake enough to want that? Are you awake or are you asleep to his movements? Are you pleading with him to invade your family and invade your neighborhood, invade your group of friends, invade our country? Are you declaring like Isaiah when faced with the brokenness of his own nation in Isaiah 6? Here I am, Lord, just send me. I, I don't know what I'm doing. I just love you and I'm awake. Now, if we've, if we've been asleep, what do we do about it? What do we do when we've realized that we've been apathetic and that we've excluded ourselves from the activity of God? I think verses 2 and 3 give us the answer. He says, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. And hold fast and repent. I don't know what vision, what picture comes to your mind when you think of all this, but what, the thing that it reminds me most of is Jesus when he's wrestling with his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you get this great contrast, right, between Jesus and his disciples in this moment because Jesus realizes, like, what's about to happen and he's wrestling with God over the fact that, that he's... He's in agony about what he's about to endure on behalf of humanity that he loves so very much. And, and in his agony and in his, you know, um, he can't sleep, certainly. But he asks his disciples to keep watch and pray, you remember? And what do they say? We'll do it. Sure enough, Jesus, we will pray with you. Go, Jesus. We got your back, you know? And then what happens? (laughs) They sleep. And Jesus comes back and he says, you fell asleep. What happened? Oh, I'm sorry. Well, stay awake. And then what happens? 
They fall asleep. And then Jesus comes back again, and he says, hey, you said you're going to stay awake. What's going on? They said, oh, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. We'll stay awake. And what happens? The third time they fall asleep. Three times they promise. Three times they fail. Does this sound familiar to you? I mean, it does to me. I think, like, it hasn't just been three times. It's been at least a dozen or two. I'm like, God, I'll stay awake. This time this time's going to be different, you know? And then over on the other side of the garden, Jesus is in agony for us. He's crying out to God for us. He's bleeding, literally bleeding as he sweats for us. And I think he's modeling what it looks like to hold fast and to turn to God again. And if you've been spiritually asleep, the way, the way out, the way back is to turn and face him again. It's, it's to look at Jesus as he engages with the heart of God and to realize what he's doing for you. It's, it's to fall on your face before him and ask him to wash over you with his presence again. It's to, it's to, rem- it's to ask him to remind you of times when you were spiritually alive again. Like, God, bring me back to to moments where my heart did beat for you. But I know, here's the thing, when I I think of it, this week I thought about, kind of in light of all this stuff, like going back and looking at some of my prayer journals, like from the first couple years. And I think I'm still going to do it. I haven't done it yet. But there was something in my heart that kind of had like this, ooh, I don't know if I want to do that. And I think what was actually happening was that I didn't want to be confronted with the pain of how much I had been asleep. I thought, I don't know, the, like, do you ever get shocked awake and you're like, it's, you're, you're so startled, it's like painful? Or do you ever, here, here's the best analogy, like when your leg falls asleep, it's not the fact that it's asleep that hurts, Right? <laughs> It's when the blood starts getting back into that leg and you're like, oh, I can't do anything now. It just, you know, you're like, you're paralyzed because of the pain. And we, we often think that somehow in turning back to the one that we've fallen asleep on, that we're going to experience that same kind of pain. And I think in some ways there, there is a good sort of remorse that, that is necessary with repentance. There is a necessary sorrow that should wash through our hearts when we realize what we've been excluded from. I think that's okay. But at the same time, I, we, we can't allow that momentary sorrow to rob us of the joy of seeing our Savior face to face. We can't. And if you've if you think, man, I'd, I'd love to wake up, but what if he's angry with me? Or what if he rejects me? Or what if it's too late? You know, we can come up with all these excuses of why we can't or shouldn't or don't want to turn back to Jesus. And I just, I want to remind you, three times the disciples fell asleep on Jesus. Three times he called them to wake up. And they failed him every single time. And yet, what did Jesus do with his very next step? He walked to the cross for them. I mean, if you think, if there's any moment in Jesus' life where he goes, you know what, this, is, this isn't worth it. I'm, I'm, they, they keep falling asleep on me. Why should I stay awake for them, you know? Like, I'm, I'm done with this whole thing, you know? I, I'm just going to walk away. But he doesn't do that. He goes to the cross for the very people that fall asleep on him, like you and me. And he pays the penalty for our inability to stay awake. So that doesn't tell you that, that, that he will receive you when you call out to him. I don't know what does. 
I have no other convincing proof other than the cross of Jesus Christ to tell you that the way to, to being back in his presence, to looking him eye to eye, is still open for you. I have no other resource. And that's how we know that, you know, when God says in Psalm 21, 121, verses 2 and 3, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. You realize that no matter how many times you fall asleep on Jesus, He's never, never once fallen asleep on you. And oh, how He's longed for you to lift your eyes up to Him again to look him in the eye, to cry out to him for help. Psalm 31, verse 16 says, Let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. Let me not be put to shame, Lord, for I have cried out to you. I just want to encourage you that the cross means that even if you've spent your entire life like every day from the moment you were born until now, asleep to the presence of Jesus. Today, today is the day that you can turn to Him and cry out and know that He will not put you to shame because Jesus took your shame on Himself at the cross. So there's nothing left. There's no more exclusion for you. There's only uh, open arms for you. And so cry out to him and confess and listen to how he responds to you. How many of you have uh, played Marco Polo as a kid? How many of you have played it as an adult? Okay, good. Just want to make sure we haven't grown up. <laughs> um, how does that game work? Remind me. Polo. Nobody played. Come on. Do it again. Polo. <laughs> we have a real Marco. Be careful. <laughs> you, 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 when you're playing the game Marco Polo, you, you call out, and then what happens? You listen for the response. And you call out again. And you listen for the response. And then as you hear the response of those who are playing the game with you, you move towards their voice. Yes, that's how I find Janine at the Right. <laughs> You're not allowed to make a joke about her when she's outside of the room. <laughs> right, perfect timing. <laughs> <laughs> Almost got away with it. <laughs> right, right. But isn't, I mean, it's the fact that when you call out and then you get a response, that lets you know that you're still in the game, right? And it's a fitting analogy for actually for waking up because here's what happens when you start to wake up spiritually. You can't see very well. And you're sort of disoriented. It's a little like having your eyes closed. Because they've been closed for so long. And, and you're not sure exactly where God is, but you call out to Him anyway. And after you call out to Him, you listen for Him. You listen for Him to respond to you, to, to, to speak your name, to, to move in your heart, to, 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 to impress on you things that He wants you to know and things that He wants you to do people that he wants you to, to love and to speak to. And every time you call out and every time he responds, you, you take one step closer in the direction of that voice. Now here's the thing about the game of Marco Polo. Nobody's ever won the game of Marco Polo by calling out Marco once. Right? I mean, that's a... You're like, Marco, Polo, all right, I'm done. I just, where are you? I can't see you. I can't find you. 
No, keep playing the game. You don't win the game unless you continue to play. And every time you play, every time you call out, every time you ask God for, to, to respond to you, every time, every time you get closer to His voice. Now, what does Jesus promise then? It's the last thing. What does He promise to those who call out to Him, to those who stay awake? He says in verses 4 and 5, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, also be dressed in white. Um, white was used for a lot of things, but one of the things that it was used for in combat is when a conquering king overtook a city, that king and all the people that are on that king's side would have a, a, a procession through the city dressed in white robes. See, and this is what Jesus promises. He promises that you will get to walk with Him. You, you who think, oh, I've blown it, I've fallen asleep. I mean, think of all the time that I've wasted. Boy, I wish I could get that back. Listen, if that's you, then Jesus is saying, look, there are some, of, there are some people out there who haven't fallen asleep on me, and they're going to get to walk in white. But you, you notice, he doesn't just say it's only for them. He says, you who have fallen asleep but are now waking up, I want to dress you in white too. I have a robe for you. It's, it's not over yet. You get to walk with me as long as you're drawing breath on this planet. You get to walk with me if you wake up and cry out to me and move in my direction. So what does that, what does that look like? Um, I don't know if you, there was a documentary that came out about 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago now, um, called Wasteland. And um, I just found out about it recently, but it is the documentary of a Brazilian street artist and photographer named Vic Muniz. And um, he is uh, famous for working with discarded material. Think garbage. Think junk, right? And he takes these everyday discarded items and he rearranges them and he takes pictures of them and he turns them into work of art. And um, this documentary was about the fact that Muniz came up with this idea where he wanted to go into um, a place called Gramacho Gardens, which is in Rio de Janeiro. It's actually the largest landfill in Latin America. And this is a picture of what it looks like. Um, and what's interesting about Gramacho Gardens is that when he arrived there to collect items for his next art project, he realized that there were a group of people that essentially lived in the landfill. And the way that they made a living was by recycling materials in the waste. And so every day they would go out and they would pick through the garbage and try to collect enough so that they could make a living and feed their families. And um, Vic um, got to meet these people, and he ended up choosing five of the residents there and he took their portraits. Um, and so he would take pictures of these people, and then what he did is he took the portrait and he blew it up to about the size of a basketball court. It was enormous. And he laid them out in a warehouse, and then um, he would take the garbage that these people had been collecting, and he and the people together would then kind of go to the picture that he had taken of them, and then arrange their junk to highlight the features of each person. And then Muniz would go up on this really tall scaffolding, which we, I think we have a picture of, and he would take pictures of the collages that he and the pickers had made together. And he took those, the pictures of the collages and turned them into an incredible work of art. 
In fact, um, Muniz's exhibit, when it was displayed in Brazil's Modern Museum of Art, was the second most popular exhibit behind Picasso. And one of the pictures was sold at an auction and someone paid $50,000 for it to hang in their home. You know the incredible thing about the story is that these people that lived in the landfill, they thought that their lives amounted to basically the same thing that they were collecting. They really thought like, I have no story to tell, I have no place in the world, I have nothing to offer. And yet in the hands of this artist, they would get up on the scaffolding or they, would, they were invited to the Museum of Art and they're watching people just gawking at their, at their, their photos. And they would just weep. And one, one of them actually said, I never thought that my life could be a work of art. And this, isn't, that, isn't that an incredible picture of what God does for us when we wake up? That even though we fall asleep on Him, even though we turn our backs on Him, even though we've soiled our clothes and wasted the breath that God gives us to be used for Him and Him alone, He still comes into our mess and He takes the heaps of garbage that we've been collecting and in this exchange with Him, as we turn and cry out to Him, He takes that mess and He gives us righteousness in return and He turns our lives into an art show that displays to the world what our creator artist is like. This is what our God does for us when we cry out to Him for help. Verse 5 says, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and His angels. You realize that there are angels who are rejoicing over your name right now if you belong to Him? that if you'll turn back to him, that he will write your story into what he's doing in the world again. This is what, what Muniz did for his subjects is that he turned and gave them a status that they could have never earned for themselves. In Brazil, they weren't worth nothing. They weren't worth anything more than what they were picking. But now, their image is a prized possession and they have a status beyond anything that they could have ever dreamed before. Jesus promises that He will take your soiled garments. He'll take your inability to stand on your own and He will replace it with a white robe. I mean, do you know, like, you get to leave this place and you get to go to your workplace tonight or tomorrow and you don't have to check that white robe at the door. You get to take it with you everywhere you go. You get to be awake everywhere you go. You get to be moved by the Spirit of God everywhere you go. It's available to you. The one who holds the seven stars is calling out to you this morning, wake up, repent, cry out, remember, and know that I can turn your life into something incredible. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you don't condemn us for our sleepiness. But you do in your grace and your love for us want to rescue us. God, we confess that we are a sleepy people. We've allowed the values of our culture to invade the way that we think about following you. That somehow Walking with you and a life with you is sort of a side project to the rest of life.
wake us up, God, to the reality that you want to dance with us. You want to move us. You have places that you want us to go and to be taken to. We submit our lives to you again. We want to be like Isaiah, Lord. Send us. Use us. Fill us. Speak to us. Change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.